This is e-commerce today, where we talk e-commerce every day. I'm your host, Maxwell Murphy. My goal is to help e-commerce companies become the best place in the world to buy the products they sell. I talk strategy. I talk management. I talk about real processes you can put in place to take your e-commerce business to the next level. I interview people who are running successful e-commerce businesses at every scale. We talk e-commerce software, service, and advertising providers. I help you cut through the BS, hang on to your profits, and thrive in the most competitive marketplace ever invented, the internet. Now let's get started. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This episode is one of my favorites. We always have sharp and inspiring guests on the program, but Karen stood out for me as someone who lives and breathes e-commerce every day. I know you're going to love hearing her story and her perspective on e-commerce. Before we jump into the interview, I want to take a moment to talk about testing. There's one moment in the interview where Karen asks me if Penguin Magic has tested the conversion rate of customers who have called the number on the top right of our site to talk with customer service. The truth is we haven't tracked this number. But even if I knew the number, that wouldn't help me decide whether or not it's worth it for us to have our phone number in the top right. Even if 100% of the customers who call our phone number place an order, that doesn't necessarily mean it's worth it for us to have the number in the top right. The reason is that some percentage of those customers who called would have placed an order even if we didn't have phone support. They might have emailed their question, or they might have Googled and found the answer, or they might have just placed the order without even knowing the answer. Also, there might be customers who don't call, but like seeing our number and feel confident knowing they could easily call. So it might boost our conversion rate even if customers don't call. The only way I know of to figure out how much impact that phone number in the top right is having would be to do a split test. These are also called A-B tests because we're splitting our traffic randomly into two groups, A and B. Now, in this example, we'd show half of the users the phone number in the top right and half of the users would see no phone number in the top right. I bring this up because there are many things in e-commerce that seem like they're working, but they may not be, or they may not be working as well as we think. I love having the phone number in the top right. I'm not arguing against that. I think is a great idea. Now, I haven't tested. I haven't done an A-B test, so I don't know for sure. I just wanted to talk about how we would test to see what kind of an impact that's having. Another example of something that's hard to test is shopping cart abandonment emails. If you only look at things like conversion rate and revenue for people who received the email, you're not seeing how these people would have behaved if they didn't receive the email. I know a lot of people end up ordering, but a lot of people were going to order anyway. They just hadn't had time to order yet. So in order to test that, the only way I know of would be to do another A-B test. Half of the people get the card abandonment email and half of the people don't get the card abandonment email. There are a number of tools that help websites and e-commerce companies do A-B tests. I've used Optimizely and I like it. You can Google them and check their competitors as well if you're interested in doing A-B tests. The only cautionary note is that when you don't have a lot of traffic, it can be very difficult to draw strong conclusions from A-B tests. The experience that I have had is the A group or the B group looks like it's winning and like in the beginning, one will jump out to a lead and you think, wow, we've made a breakthrough here. And then as the test runs longer and longer, the two sides start to even out. Most changes that you make to a website don't have all that dramatic an impact. So if you don't have a ton of traffic, it can be hard to figure out if one group is really performing better than the other group. Another way to test is to turn a feature on and off, one week on and one week off. You could use any time frame you want, but just turning it on and turning it off. Now, that's very useful to test things that you can't do a standard A-B test with. For example, you could test an advertisement. I've used this in the past to test whether it makes sense in Google AdWords, whether it makes sense to pay for a company's brand name. 
So we did one week on, one week off. We ran it for about 14 weeks. And then we looked at the numbers. And at the end of that test, we figured out that for that brand, it was pretty much a wash. They made the same amount of profit either way, whether they had the add on or the add off. So that's it. I had that on my mind after the conversation. You know, Sometimes I do these interviews and I don't have a chance to ask every question I'd like or make every point that I'd like. So I thought I'd throw it into the intro. This episode of e-commerce today is sponsored by PIP. PIP stands for process in place, and it's the easiest way to put processes in place in your business. For example, let's say you have the idea to have your customer service team members reach out to new manufacturers when they're not busy helping customers. Many people talk about ideas like this, but it's hard to make them happen and happen consistently in an organization. If you're like me, you dream up process ideas all the time. We should be contacting suppliers regularly. We should be sending a monthly newsletter to our partners. We should be doing regular employee trainings. We should be getting a regular financial statement. But in a small organization, these things don't happen unless you put the process in place. That means assigning the process to a team member, getting specific about what needs to be done and when, and tracking the process to make sure it's really happening. PIP is the tool that was built for exactly this job. PIP was built to help managers put processes in place. That's all it does, and it does it beautifully. This is the tool that can help you become a world-class manager. Sign up today at pip.today. That's P-I-P, as in process in place, P-I-P. Today. Our second sponsor is hors d'oeuvre.com. helps make this show possible by sending me a big juicy check every month, but that's not all they do. Hors makes it easy for e-commerce companies to send customized videos to their customers. Imagine sending your customers a video version of their shipping confirmation email, or sending them a customized thank you video, or even sending them a product demo video that greets them by name. There are so many applications for customized videos. You can let your imagination go wild here. Hors d'oeuvre loves to work with e-commerce entrepreneurs to create best-in-the-world experiences. We use hors d'oeuvre at Penguin Magic to send each customer a customized order packing video. Hors d'oeuvre has plans starting at $100, so this won't cost you a fortune, but it will help you stand out in your market and create experiences your customers won't soon forget. Tell them Maxwell sent you and your first month is free. Hors O-R-D-E-R-V as in video, dot com. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Karen Gold. Karen is an e-commerce entrepreneur with a wide range of experiences selling on eBay, Amazon, and through her own websites. Karen owns three websites currently, KeepDoggySafe.com, MexicanTrainFun.com, and PickleballParadise.com. Over the years, she's had e-commerce stores on Magento, Yahoo Stores, BigCommerce, and Shopify. We're going to get into all of it. I've been excited about this episode all week. Karen, welcome to the program. Thanks. Happy to be here. Great to have you. I wanted to start by kind of going back to the beginning. How did you get into e-commerce in the first place? Okay, so we're a technology enthusiast, and I found a lighted dog leash in the closeout section at Burlington Coat Factory. So, of course, I took it home and had to try it. And when we walked our dog that night, we almost got hit by a car, and the guy said, wow, I would have hit you if you didn't have that lighted leash. And just like it was an Oprah moment, I said, I'm building a website. I'm saving life. I'm doing, selling these lighted leashes. And then I really didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I talked the guy in who built the lighted leashes into teaching me about e-commerce. And next thing I know, I was meeting a shipment at LAX and importing lighted dog collars and leashes. Wow. So let's slow down a second. What year was this when you were in Burlington Coat Factory and, and got inspired by the leash? It was 2006, the good old days of e-commerce. Okay. So you go ahead and buy the product at Burlington Coat Factory and you had, you had your moment. 
talk me through in, in a few more details. How, how'd you actually get started? Uh, did you contact that manufacturer that was on the package that you had purchased or how did it work? Actually, no, um, that manufacturer was out of business. That's why it was closed out. So I just started Googling lighted collars and leashes and found the first one and got right through to the CEO of the company. And he said in his New York accent, honey, I don't really help people like you, but I'll make an exception. But you have to buy 500. So that's why I was meeting the uh, truck at LAX within three weeks. So the bad news is I really didn't know which questions to ask. So I thought, oh, my gosh, everyone and everyone, I lived in California and I believed, oh, my gosh, everyone's walking their dog. I'm going to buy four to one leashes over collars. So that was one of my first mistakes. But um, learned that real fast. And then we started on the Yahoo platform because at the time that was the easiest product to build. And they had a killer customer service team. So I started by building my own website on the Yahoo platform. Okay. So, so right away, the first thing you did was put up a Yahoo store. Right. And that you, you didn't and, start selling on eBay or anything. You just opened up the Yahoo store. You know, it was before that time we went right to Yahoo because um, in whenever, in this kind of technology, you have the pioneering cost of educating people. There's a problem and then selling yourself as the solution. So I knew I needed a website to tell the story because at that time, it wasn't all over the place. You lost me for a second. Tell me about the different people. The, how did you describe it? Well, when you're launching technology and people aren't really aware that there's a problem, you have to educate them on what the problem is at the same time as you're telling, selling them that you're the solution to the problem that they weren't aware of. So I needed more of a place to tell a story, a website to tell a story than having something that wasn't really understood and putting it up on places where they didn't really have silent salesmen like eBay or Amazon. I see. So that's why you decided to start your, your website from the beginning to right. tell that story. And how, yeah. did, how did you tell the story? How did you, you know, introduce people to this concept that they have a problem? Well, it was the statistics about the number of people who are killed in car accidents and the number of dogs that are killed are pr pretty much tell the story. And it happens at dawn or dusk. And 90% of drivers say, I didn't see them. So trying not to use fear as a tactic, but knowing that this was a real problem is how we told the story. Um, we also did videos that showed the light going on at, at dusk and, and dawn and the difference of seeing a dog at the collar and on the leash at night. It's an aha moment once people see it, but they don't realize that that product was out at that time. I see. So you put up the website and on day one, I imagine there's, there's not a lot of traffic because you just put it, put it up. Where did you get your first traffic or how did you generate your first attention? Well, we went and we built an AdWords account, and this is going to just break your heart. In the old days, for every dollar you spent on AdWords, you made $8 back. And at that time, you didn't have to bid very high for lighted collars and leashes. So we were, with very little knowledge, we were getting customers very fast because there wasn't a lot of um, category competition. What were people searching for in the beginning? Yeah, what, what kind of keywords were, were working for you in, the, in that beginning? Because you said that you needed to tell the story and kind of educate people on the problem. Were there some people that had kind of clued into it already and that's where you were getting the search volume? I think we were, yes. I think we were doing lighted collars. Uh, we did dog safety at night. We did a little bit of broad match. But what would happen, which is just wonderful, is that once somebody would buy a lighted collar or leash in a neighborhood, their neighbors would ask them where they got it. And at the time, we were one of the key people, and we always had great customer service. So we would see the whole neighborhood light up with orders wow. in the region. So it was, it was the perfect storm and the e-commerce dream. Wow. So that's, that's interesting. It sounds like the fact that it's lighted must make it a really remarkable product. 
how important has that aspect of it been? Have, have you had experience trying to sell other products that aren't as remarkable? Yes, we did. We have a lot of experience in that. So what we learned quickly was that we had a seasonality effect with lighted leashes and collars. And we, the minute the daylight savings time would change in fall, our sales would rise instantly. But that didn't pay the bills for the rest of the year. So we had to look at other products. We decided to specialize in dog safety because, as you know, you need a niche. And we started getting cooling pads in summers and other things like that. But it was hit and miss finding the right product and finding the right ones with an investment in PPC that were profitable. I see. So you start with just the the leashes and then what was your next product to bring in? Was it collars at the same time or did that come later? We brought in collars and leashes from the same manufacturer, but we quickly learned that there was a lot more people looking for lighted collars and leashes. And then we went into collar lights because that was a natural one. Just some people didn't want an entire new collar. They wanted a light in general to hang down. And then we went into people lights because people needed lights like LED lights and armbands and biking lights. Did you do that under the same keepdoggysafe.com website? Yeah, we tried to really, I have a marketing background. So we wanted to try to stay on, on target with our brand promise, which was dog safety. So that kind of made it easy for us to stay on track for the right selection. Whenever we strayed and we went into the general mass market because we thought it was a cool product, that's when there's just so much competition and we couldn't tell our, sell ourselves as the unique solution for their needs. I see. So did people lights work out well or was that too far outside your niche? It worked out okay, but um, it wasn't. Uh, it was there because people needed to be safe with their dogs, but it never sold as well as being the dog um, specialist. Wow. I mean, because there's there's people who own that niche, like Night Deer does an incredible job. And if you're an athlete and you're on a bicycle, you go under whatever your biking lights and you want a certain kind and look. So that category was a little trickier and not right on as target as dog safety. Why is it so important to have a, ni- a niche in e-commerce? Well, if you um, use the example of the lighted dog collars, we had that niche, niche, and then everyone copied it. And particularly as the markets changed and Amazon's grown and there's all this copycats coming from China, you have to be, as they say in e-commerce, an inch, an inch short and a mile wide. So that way you have several different products so that if something gets knocked off or has a lot of competition, you have several products that are in your niche and, you have, and you'll have more success or several points of failure. It's a mile wide and an inch deep is how they say it. Now, have you found that to be the case? Like, have you seen that a product will just kind of die on you because it's been knocked off or it's available on Amazon now? Are there some examples that you've seen of that? Oh, there's several examples. We did marketing for a a guy who did such a great job building a dog cooling pad. And he, he, he bought the patents. He defended the patents. He did everything right. Fast forward three years later, that product so knocked off. Um, on Amazon, eBay, wherever it can be, that he no longer is making his margins and is not really promoting his brand, even though he owns all the patents. It's just a fat, it's just the way the global economy has changed. Wow. So the guy has the product, he start, he sells it through you guys and I imagine other retailers. And how long was the period of time before the knockoffs made it? Did it become impossible for you guys to sell or do you, does it still sell pretty well through your website? Well, it made it, it was impossible for him to hold his price in the marketplace because people don't know the difference from his from his product and the knockoffs and the knockoffs obviously are much cheaper so he had problems matching that 
And we started losing because we weren't going to sell the cheaper products. And people don't really understand the difference in a dog cooling pad. So he, it's, it's not just him. I don't know if you read that recent article in Entrepreneur Magazine, but it's, it's really hard for manufacturers to hang on to their products, even though they're copyrighted, patented, because just the battle is a never-going battle. Is, is it mostly related to Amazon? or? Well, it's very interesting in the dog business because everyone can't wait to get in the dog business because it's their passion. But then we also, besides Amazon, we have a competitor out there called Chewy.com. And they sell the product for the same price that all of the retailers are buying it for. How do they do that? You know what? Nobody knows. <laughs> and everyone wants to know. So do they act as like a distributor in the market and get special distributor level pricing that's that's less than what a, they, a retailer would typically do, pay? They but my, um, our distributors say they're selling it for what they're buying it for. It's predatory pricing. And, and other Walmart does the same thing. It, it's just trying to, to knock the smaller players out of the marketplace then when they own the marketplace, they'll raise the prices. Wow. So so that's, that's a dynamic in the pet. And it sounds like people kind of use pet products. I've heard that Walmart uses pet products in some cases, almost like lost leaders, just to get people into the store. Absolutely. That's correct. Wow. It's interesting. I mean, my perception is that pet that pet products is a pretty dif- difficult niche because there is so much competition from stores like Walmart and now on Amazon. What's your angle on it? How do, how do you still find these winning products in such a competitive marketplace? Okay, so there's another thing to, to that earlier statement. It's very interesting when you read the pet retailer magazines. They say, your competition may be Amazon, but your competition is the corner grocery store that is also trying to get every dollar they can when the person's in the marketplace or in their store. And they're gonna, that's why they're stocking pet items. If you look at pet items, you're going to find it in your hardware store. It's just gone everywhere because people don't want to, they think that people don't want to go into another store to pick up products. And the only reason that PetSmart and Petco are surviving is because they have services. So offering services is the way they've kept in business. But getting back to how how we're surviving, um, we found that because people who really don't know about pets are creating products so they can just keep undercutting and seeing what's selling and then doing a cheaper version, that nobody's really paying attention to a good product in dog safety. Like they'll do the cheapest version of that product, but that means they're using materials that aren't safe for pets or they're adding Velcro, which catches their fur, or not really thinking about how that product's getting used. So we built our own line of products based on our experience in vets and a dog testing panel that has all those safety features called out. And we've got, so we've, we've ended up working with a team of safety experts and building our own line. That way we have total control of the margins, their distribution, and the competition. Wow. Now, how many products are there in your own line now? We're just starting out. Everything's coming in. At this point, we have 10 products. And we've already sold it into a vet line and are setting up um, our Amazon strategy. Great. Well, that sounds like a great approach. Now you'll control the pricing and you'll control the quality and you'll be able to really have something that's different. And then you can compete on Amazon yourself. Right. But it's going to be a brief window. And the Amazon experts tell you, don't go up there too fast and don't try to win it because that's what people are paid for in China is to look at the hot sellers and knock it off. So it's a whole strategy, just how much sales volume you want to release your product in in the first couple of months in Amazon. What's the thinking? The thinking, I'll tell you, it's very interesting. So if you have a product and it's maturing and you're selling 60 units a month on Amazon, you do the math and say, okay, what's it going to take me to get up to 200 of this product this month? And you look at the advertising and now you have to spend ads 
sponsored ads and advertising. You look at what that cost would be to go from 60 to 200 in one month. But then you look at if I add these other products and I dilute my loss of potentially being um, ripped off while I'm promoting this product, that might be a better strategy. It will cost me less money to promote five other products to get it up to that 200-unit profit, and that might be a better strategy. So there's a whole different science of you're sort of managing your portfolio of products to mitigate risk of being knocked off. So let me see if I understand this. Instead of going big with one item, you take your same investment and separate it across five items or some, some larger number of items, and then each item won't sell as well. So it's not because it's not selling as well, it doesn't get attention from the people that want to knock off products. But overall, across those five products, you're able to, to make the same sales that you would with that one item that you were going really heavy on. Exactly. Yeah, I had a friend that released a really hot item called Wallet Ninja. It's a multi-tool that fits into your wallet. And it, it was a big seller. They had it in, in Walmarts and all kinds of stores. And they also had it on Amazon. And it was amazing how quickly it got knocked off on Amazon. And there were people that were, you know, he had never sold the item to these people, but all of a sudden they had it and they were, it was a basically a counterfeit version of his own product that was being sold underneath his listing. I know. It's actually, I was consulting for a company and I brought in their listings and said, oh, I've been doing some research and these are your products that are selling really well on Amazon. And the girl started highlighting the report I gave her. I'm like, why are you going white? What's going on? She said, well, all these are our counterfeiters. They're using our images and our copy. And now you've just showed me how much I'm losing every month. And I said, well, what do you, you know, there's things you must be able to do. And she said, no, we had Disney in here a while ago. And Disney says that they would like to tell us that we had millions of lawyers and they could fight this, but they haven't been that successful either. So what Amazon's doing is to try to back the corporations now is they are charging $1,000 per brand per listing to try to stop some of the counterfeiters. Oh, because I've been wondering, why doesn't Amazon have a, like, I want to buy new headphones for my iPhone and I went onto Amazon to buy them and there's tons of reviews that say, don't buy it. You know, the, the listing says it's from Apple, but there's tons of reviews that say it's just a cheap knockoff from China. Don't buy it. I had to drive down the road and, and go buy at Best Buy where I know that it's at least going to be the real product. And I've been thinking, why doesn't Amazon do something to make it so that people can't just counterfeit items? It's a great question. <laughs> I wish we all had that answer. I think that they're trying, but it's a really tough fight. Tell me about this new program that you mentioned, $1,000. Is it per brand or per UPC or what is it? Oh, so Amazon is looking at the items that are not the brands that are knocked off because all the brands are coming together and saying, you've got to help us. And so Amazon is, if you have a listing, you have to pay $1,000 per listing to list that product. Per individual product, $1,000. Yeah, $1,000 if you're buying a branded product. That will flush out a lot of the counterfeiters. That's just to list it for sale? Yes. Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't know if it's every reseller or if it's one that they think are known counterfeiters that they're starting with. Wow. But that's, um, that's what they're trying to do. The other thing is there was a really interesting study in that entrepreneur article, and the guy found out that people were pricing it much higher on eBay, buying it on his website, and then he was fulfilling to the customer. So he was actually, they were arbitraging, and he was taking care of all the shipments, but he was also getting killed in returns, and he couldn't do anything about that. So what he did is he decided, when he saw that was happening, to raise the price of his product to $200. 
So that, that killed his sales for a while, but it stopped all the counterfeiters that were using him as an arbitrage. And people didn't seem to mind if they bought, they fulfilled it on Amazon as a, if you want to use someone as a dropshipper, you just put gift message. And then it's not um, from the seller itself on Amazon. I got a little bit confused. Tell me about what happened in this article. Where can people find the article? What, what entrepreneur? The article is an entrepreneur magazine, and I believe it's something like what's going the Amazon battle or the eBay battle. And I could send you the link after our call. Great. Yeah, I'll post that in the show notes. So basically what happens is the, the manufacturer has a product on a site selling it for sixteen ninety nine. Somebody goes on eBay and people probably aren't price checking and he sells it for thirty two ninety nine. Then he goes on to the Amazon site where the product is. He buys it. He gets free shipping because he's on Prime. Oh, I see. And he sends it to his customer and he writes, gift. it's a gift message. I please see. Don't, please don't put it. It's a gift. So there's no packing slip. And then he sends it out. He sends it out to his customer. He never touches the product and he makes $16 with no shipping costs and no fulfillment. Wow. So, so it's just people that were sort of unsuspecting. They didn't realize that they were paying double the price that they could have paid if they had just found it directly from the manufacturer. Yeah. Or on Amazon, they chose to buy it on eBay. But then you said that then he was getting hurt by returns because you'd think that the manufacturer might be happy. So, you know, people are hustling and helping to sell right. their product. That's the, yeah. Yeah. That's what everyone says. Wasn't the manufacturer happy, but he wasn't because there was something that was a negative thing and people would then work product wasn't represented correctly and he was getting bad reviews on the product because they were buying on his site and he had to handle the returns because it was coming from his site. Yeah. But uh, you read that article, the guy does a fantastic job of explaining this. Great. Yeah, I, I'll check it out. I wanted to ask you, when you talk about a product, when it gets on Amazon, if it gets hot and it, and it kind of gets killed by competition, are you talking about competition from people who will offer it as a counterfeit item where they're pretending to have your actual branded item? Or are you talking about people that will... They will yeah, they're from both sides. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but what was the second half of your question? First, when, when you were telling me that you know people knock it off in China, I was assuming that they would do so, knock it off, have the same features, but at least have their own brand name, You know, not make it a counterfeit item. Are, are, are you saying that the risk is that they're going to sell it as a counterfeit item or that they're just going to come and compete? Like if they see you've got a great, a, a great item and they'll just make their own version under a different brand. Both of those cases happen. I see. They sell it using your brand name and they, they build their own for a cheaper price. I see. And as you know, design patents are really tricky. So all they have to do is change one feature and they're able to, to say that it's not under patent. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because usually the, the, the brand would have some value. So you could have the value of the brand. Right. Is your line going to be called Keep Doggy Safe? No. Our line, um, because right there, is, it's an interesting discussion. If we're going to be wholesaling our brand, no one's going to want to send people to our website to keep doggy safe. Uh-huh. So our product line is under WAG Safely. Okay, cool. So if it's a WAG Safely item, you can build value in that brand and build a following for the brand and convince people that a WAG Safely item is going to be at a certain quality level. That seems like normal, fair competition. If someone else comes out with a similar item and they have it on their own brand, they haven't built the value into the brand. But it really throws a wrench in it if Amazon lets people just counterfeit items. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's pick up the story where we left off. You had the Yahoo store up and running and you were doing some Google AdWords. Tell me how the business kind of evolved from that point. 
So the business kept growing as we found new products and we had a, we built a dog testing team. So people had a lot of confidence that the products had been tested by dogs and people in different regions and different breeds. And so we kind of built by word of mouth and the business was going great. Um, and then we realized we needed that business was going to plateau and we ended up wanting to build another website in a totally different industry to broaden our brand horizon and our portfolio. So we found another product that was not well served. It's a domino game called Mexican Train Dominoes that's very big in lots of places in the U.S. And it's a big family and senior game. I want to get all into Mexican Train Fun. But before we do, I I think a lot of my listeners, and I've been at this point before, where you feel like you're at a plateau in your business. How did you right. how did you make that call like or how did you realize were there other engines of growth that you discovered other than word of mouth and Google AdWords? Uh, there was we tried doing all the stuff reaching out to dog rescues, giving them discounts, we went out to bloggers, but it the competition just getting kept getting tougher and tougher and it was our sales weren't growing no matter what we did and that's how we determined that. I see so you just tried one thing after the next, and it just seemed like it was getting increasingly tough, not increasingly easy yeah. to, to grow beyond. In the old days, I hate to sound so old, but it was a dream. You could just put a new product up on the website, and it would sell in two hours. Now, when I just went to the dog show to look at all the new products, everyone's saying, is that on Amazon? Then I'm not buying it. So the world really changed. I mean, as you know, being an entrepreneur, you just have to keep changing and reading the market and seeing what things that are coming out. So it was all those, it was our sales were starting to plateau. We had to do the research. And we, when we saw how the landscape was changing, we decided we needed another, another uh, point of failure, as they say. Okay. So tell me about how you got inspired by Mexican train dominoes. Very big in, um, in all our family, everywhere we traveled that year for the holidays, someone was playing Mexican train and they loved it, but they had problems finding it. No one really was the expert in it. So we decided to, to do some research and find the manufacturers and be the experts in Mexican train dominoes. And then we built some of our own products in the USA because we saw niches uh, there that weren't fulfilled. Now, fast forward, it's the hottest category in Amazon toys and games. So we had to build our own set with our own unique bundling on Amazon to compete there. And um, two of the manufacturers that sold were the top manufacturers are sold. So it made it even better because now it's just a skew in a big catalog at these big toy resellers. And it even has more value for someone with that will help them. Wow. So did you guys manufacture your own your own sets? We didn't manufacture the dominoes because that's a really tough market, but we manufactured all the accessories because the trick is to have consumables so people want to keep coming back. So we manufactured the train pieces and the hubs and all of those other items that people wanted, score pads. So we built that and then we bundled it with one of the manufacturer's domino sets and built unique SKUs. Now, what year did you get started with MexicanTrainFund.com? I believe it was... 2009 or 2010. So now you're bringing in a lot of experience because you've already had keepdoggysafe.com and then you started Mexican Train Fund. What was your first kind of go-to as far as marketing it? Was it also to start on AdWords? I went out to a lot of senior centers and did an outreach program offering them discounts. 
And actually, that was one of the things that I learned the fastest is that even though I did well in the dog business, it didn't exactly translate over to this other category. And it was a very fascinating category because it had a lot of older people. So your website had to be incredibly easy. And no matter how easy you made it, you ended up having a different kind of marketplace with lots of phone orders and lots of time. So we started going out and teaching classes at the senior centers, doing things like that at the library and did more of a community outreach approach. Wow, that's really interesting. That's that's kind of totally different from the e-commerce approaches where you're really going out and getting into the community and, and kind of spreading one person at a time. Well, the other thing, the great thing is that we uh, did something on Amazon where our products that were the accessories we sold on Amazon. So we were basically putting our brand on everyone who played Mexican train who ordered our product did the advertising for us. Oh, that's cool. So you used, you used Amazon to do high volume of accessories and then spread the brand. Right. It's on every table that that bought that product. And that's and there's normally six to eight people at a table. And then people are always learning the, the game when they travel to see somebody that don't they don't know about it. And they say, where did you buy it? And they just give them one of our products and we get the call. What do they give them exactly? They give them like, we, we sell score pads. So they'll say, here's, here's their name, here's the score pad. And they'll be calling from a piece of paper that was that their neighbor gave them that when they were playing the game. Wow. So, so it's a lot like the old days of the lighted dog leash where we would light up a neighborhood. We light up a group of people that say, oh, my cousin Sally told me I had to call you to buy this. I, I got your number from the score pad. Wow. That's a really, really cool marketing approach. How did you get into manufacturing accessories for Mexican train dominoes? Did you just realize that there was, there was nobody else doing it or were there already other people doing it? How, how'd you get into it? There was other people doing it. And I wanted to do it in the U.S. because a lot of seniors had served in the war and they were all begging for USA-made products. So I just kept asking and asking everyone I would meet if somebody could help find me a place that did plastics. And believe it or not, I was at jury duty and met somebody who got me to the right place. And it was 20 miles away from where I lived and I could have looked the rest of my life and not known that. What was the first accessory that you manufactured? I made domino trays made in the U.S. much higher quality than what was in the marketplace. Cool. And initially, did you sell those through MexicanTrainFund.com or did those go straight to Amazon? I, I did, but you know what? Yet another marketing lesson, because they were made in the USA and they were such better quality than what you can get, they didn't sell well because I was dealing with seniors on a fixed income. So they were priced too high? Yeah. To me, it wasn't priced too high for the value and the quality. But once again, that was a hard story to tell to a senior market. They're not going to click on my video and see the quality. So what did you do next? How did you adapt? We just waited till the, we just were very smart about what we ordered. And then we waited until um, it makes great presents. So we, um, we just wait that they sell very well and we do it as a seasonality and we use it as gifts during the holiday season where people are willing to pay more. By the way, it's two racks that will last you the rest of your life for a pair for eighteen ninety nine. I see. During the holiday times, people were willing to spend more. Yeah, it's a great present. Cool. And, and then did you have more ideas for other accessories f- from that? Or how did, how did that business kind of continue to evolve? Yeah. I mean, because, you see, that's the greatest thing about it is that we, uh, as people kept asking for products, where could I find this? You get, you get what the market's asking for. So we would just try to find products based on needs. There isn't a lot in Mexican train. We tried reaching out into other games. But that didn't uh, work as well for us because those other games are available on every game site. So you're getting the feedback because these seniors are calling the, the number at the top right of the website. Also, 
our chat is fabulous. Chat gives us all the great questions, and we always are trying to solve a problem. So if we don't have anything someone's looking for, our customer service team will start looking for it and get back to them. So that gives us a ton of research on our chats every day. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, I noticed that I noticed the live chat on keepdoggysafe.com and, and also the phone number at the top right. Do you have that same combination of chat plus phone number on all three of your websites? Yes. When I um, first was told to put a phone number on the website, I didn't believe it. I put up a phone number on our website on the dog site, 30% increase in sales within one week. Wow, that that's amazing. It, I, you know what? I fought that my whole life, but I ran websites for AT&T Interactive and helped them build the website product. And that's the first thing I we built on every website was that phone number. For AT&T? Yeah, well, I ran their AT&T Interactive. I ran, helped them build the website product for all their advertisers. Uh-huh. And everyone would, would uh, say, why do I want to put a phone number up here? That's why I'm building a website. Yeah. And I said, watch what happens. We'll put it up and we'll take it off. You tell me what happens in a week. Wow. But then, I mean, that might be skewed by the marketplaces that, you know, we have. But if somebody's on the fence about buying something for their dog and their dog's, you know, coming out of surgery, they're going to want to talk to someone in person because every dog they think is unique. So we, we do have more calls for that. But our chat can normally answer all of those questions. How do you manage the chat? Are you doing it yourself most of the time or do you have employees that do it? We have employees that do it. I tested seven different chat programs. I I'm swear by the one we have, if you want me to mention it. I noticed live chat. Yeah, live, now it's live chat, Inc. There's another live chat. Okay. And um, it's, it's just, what we can do on that chat is amazing. Also, they one of the main reasons I chose it is it's on the iPhone. So when you're watching TV... I mean, our conversion rate with, with chat is 85%. So if someone chats you, uh, 85 out of 100 times, if someone chats you, they're going to place an order? Yep. Wow. Absolutely. Sending them a live link. They're asking you, most of the time, very intelligent questions. What What do you think I should do? My dog's a long-haired dog. What's, what's the right product for my dog? I mean, you get intelligent questions on our websites. Then we have, please tell us more about your dog. What breed is it? What's the circumstances you're going to use it? So you're basically going through a decision tree with them live and getting their dog's name and then sending them a follow-up. And you're able to do it just through through an iPhone? You can do it through an iPhone. It's unbelievable. Wow, that's awesome. How much does it cost per month to have that service? Not that much. I don't want to misquote, but I would tell you for one, one seat, it's $39 a month. Fantastic. I'm really interested. I love that advice that you gave about putting the, the phone number in the top of the site. Uh, you've got it in the top right. That's the same place we put it. We put it back when we started Penguin Magic. That's my company. We started in 2002. We put the phone number on the top right. I forget where we first heard that advice, but we did it from day one. So we never did that test where we'd see a jump in sales. Right. And do you, do you find that with your conversion rate after your calls, do you have a higher conversion rate? Well, we have never measured it. So I, I'm not sure, but I, I worked the phones myself, you know, f- for several years and it was great to connect with the customers and you, I mean, you'd get, you'd form friendships and, and really get to understand the market in a way that you couldn't, if you were just, you know, sitting behind a computer trying to imagine what people were thinking or what they were wanting. Right. I know one guy who's very successful 
that has never moved his desk away from the customer service team so he can listen all day to what the calls are about. Wow. That reminds me of a guy I know who is running another magic company, one of our competitors. I went to visit him and he's a very, you know, he's got a lot of big staff and a successful company going. And during the course of our meeting, he had to excuse himself about 10 times to take customer phone calls. So even though he was, you know, he had plenty of people that could have been on the phone, he was, uh, and I thought, man, by that point, I had long ago stopped taking phone calls myself, but he was still doing it. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's tough to compete with. Well, there's several different ways you could view that. I would, one of them, someone would say to him as they were coaching him saying, this is the value of your time more than that. Yeah. But you know what? If that's what's working, that's the right decision. Yeah. Let's get into the the next thing. Well, did Mexican Train Fund, did it kind of reach a plateau as well? Or how did how did that business evolve? Or is it still growing? Like, where, where is that? Uh, that's uh, still growing, but it's in the toy and game category. And it has to, in order for a business to succeed, you have to get out of this model of Google ad search, which has gone up and up in the cost. And Google keeps changing their algorithms. And you have to have something that's consumable that people are going to need again and again every year when they pull out their set. Unfortunately, that domino category doesn't have that. A, a domino set's going to last you 25 years. You don't really need to have a new score pad. People can go photocopy it. So that's, that's been a challenge for us. We're still working on that and making our own products there seems to be the solution. That's really good advice to find a product that's consumable. I'm curious, you said get out of the Google AdWords. You don't want to be relying on just that one engine of growth. But over the years, since you and I started, there's been this whole revolution with social media happening. Have you found any any sweet spots in social media? Have you moved any of your advertising budget for any of your sites over to social? Or are you sticking with AdWords? And No, no. Um, so, so in Mexican Train Fund, because it's a senior market, social isn't a winning strategy. So we had to be more creative. Um, for, for, um, the dog site, you know, they give you all this fantastic advice about getting back leaks from bloggers. Almost every blogger we've reached out to has asked for money for reviews. Have you tried any of those? Yeah, we we're in the process of trying that. We're just being very careful of who we choose, but it, social media is totally a great platform. And they just did a study on it and they showed that Facebook and Twitter have a lifespan of five minutes and Pinterest is the one that has the longest take rate and continues to pay dividends. We're using their buy buttons up quite a bit. My perspective on social was, I mean, I had so much success with email marketing, marketing to our, our newsletter list that when Facebook and you know, MySpace first and Facebook and people started to really move in that direction, but all the tests that we did, you got so much worse results than if you just sent a promotional email that oh, it didn't seem exciting to tell people, hey, like us on Facebook or even to try to build an audience over there because we've got an email list of a couple hundred thousand people. And then we've got full full ability to send them a message for nearly for free. So social never seemed very appealing. But lately, as I'm talking to more e-commerce entrepreneurs, I've been surprised about what's working in other industries and what's working for other people. And that's what makes it so fun to do this show. You know, affiliate marketing hasn't worked well in the magic business, but I've talked to people who that's their primary engine of growth. And the same way with social and, and you know, buying ads on Facebook, there are companies that it really works for. So that's kind of blown my mind. And now I'm at the perspective where I just think, wow, you really just need to try everything and figure out what's going to work in your unique niche. Exactly. 
And you have to keep trying because it might work for a month and then it doesn't work after that. Yeah, and that's that's the hard part, right? To figure out, well, have I tried hard enough? Maybe it's just that I'm not good enough at buying Facebook ads yet and I just need to refine and get get better at that art. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see. uh, We we had recently had Tony from Cassandrinos International on the show and he was talking, they sell olive oil and he was talking about the incredible successes that they've had through affiliate marketing. And it's just amazing. That's the, like the, primary driver of growth and, and business for the, for them. So it, it'll be interesting to see if you're able to find affiliates. It seems to me that with Keep Doggy Safe, because Cassandrinos has done really well, they're selling olive oil as a health food product. That's kind of their angle on it. And they've done really well with doctors and, and nutrition experts emailing to their lists and promoting this awesome brand of olive oil that they've got. And I wonder if Keep Doggy Safe is a similar thing where there might be some health experts or medical experts that would be able to be affiliates for you guys. I'll look into it. It's a great idea. We could um, use vet lists because our, our new products have been picked up by veterinarians. So that's probably a great idea. I'll try any. We'll try anything. Anything's a great idea as far as we're concerned. Yeah. Now, it's, it's really it's surprising sometimes what works. And I had another guest on the show selling nutritional supplements and their most effective marketing was doctors recommending their brand of supplements. Looking at that advice in the magic industry where I am, there aren't really people that have a large list that aren't our competitors. You know, there are people with a big list. It could be like a popular magician that's inventing tricks. They'll have a big list, but that person will always also sell directly to their customers. But in some other fields, there'll be people that are just an expert and they'll have a big newsletter list, but it'll be something that's tangential where they could still promote your product in an affiliate situation. Right. Um, I, I missed a very key point when you asked me how we made the decision and could see the markets maturing. What happened really was a horrible case of channel conflict. When we started, the manufacturer would never consider selling against you. They prided you as a reseller of their product. Now the manufacturers are selling directly against you on Amazon or building their own websites where you can buy on it. Ah. So that channel conflict also changed the strategy of wanting to sell someone else's brand where they could always undercut you because you weren't the manufacturer. So that was one of the things that made us start to refocus. Yeah, that's a really good point. I saw the same thing. I did some consulting for some fashion companies and I was shocked that the brands feel free to sell directly through their websites these days. It seemed to me from my experience in the magic industry, people were very careful not to sell directly and undercut their retailers. Yes, those days are gone. Yeah, that makes it even more important, as you said, to have your own brand. I've I've seen that on, in a lot of my interviews. It seems like the people that have the easiest time are the people who have control, where they have their own brand. They can set the price and be the brand. So how did you get into Pickleball Paradise? So um, I'm an ex-tennis player, and there's a game called Pickleball that is a combination of tennis, ping pong, and badminton. And you play outside on a smaller court, and the aging boomers are all getting surgery on their rotator cuff from playing tennis, and they needed a game where they could still compete and get a lot of exercise. So I played pickleball, and as all everyone's trying to make their passion their business, so we decided to have a, have a pickleball site. But I wasn't really planning and never had the good business model, but I ended up helping our city build a pickleball program and needed to get them balls. So I said, I'll just throw up a website. And so you guys could make it easier for you to get balls. So I did that. And I kept morphing and morphing. What's the right 
product and mix to have here because the competition was fierce. Every one of the baby boomers didn't want to go back into corporate America, love pickleball, and exploded on the marketplace. Really? And I did that fabulous strategy where we own every killer pickleball URL that you could have. Pickleball resorts, pickleball vacations, pickleball university, camp pickleball. Well, that, that kind of real estate that used to have so much cachet in the old days, remember when we did the land grab on the URL? Yeah. Is, is an interesting thing. But now people are buying those URLs and using them as parking lots to understand where the real value is in that URL and then driving the traffic to their website. So we've done that. And then it turns out that we decided after running two other businesses that we do not want to be in the inventory game because the inventory carrying costs and your marketing costs tend to suck up a lot of profits. So this great new, we hired professional artists to build great logos for us. And there's this whole new model out in e-commerce where you can basically go in and use a custom print shop that has all these different products, they create your listings for you automatically on the Shopify and BigCommerce platform. And then they take care of everything and you just get the money. So you're now, I have the pipe or inventory. You can have every size and color you want of a t-shirt or a product someone needs and not have to be engaged in the day-to-day marketing and inventory cost. So you just designed the, you designed the artwork that's going to go onto the t-shirt. Right. We've hired a professional high-end graphic artist with three different models, Captain Pickleball, which we own the URL, the URLs for it, Camp Pickleball and Pickleball Paradise. And our model is that there's a lot of clubs and ambassadors playing pickleball. And if they don't want to go through all that expense, we'll just design their t-shirts for them, put in the order and pass them the, you know, 50% of the profits. They don't have to do a thing. I lost you a little bit there. Okay. Are you talking about you're setting up an affiliate program or something where you'll pass other people? Uh, Well, sort of it. Pickleball is a fantastic community of ambassadors, people who are enthusiasts, and they're the ones who help drive and build their club. But those people normally aren't business people, and they don't want to go figure out how many t-shirts to buy and what color and shape. So we're saying, here, we've got, choose your own design, or here's Pickleball Paradise, and we'll add your city name underneath it. Go ahead and we'll make your logo, send your people over to our website. We'll give you 10% of the profits and you don't have to do a thing. Wow. How do you find those people? It's very easy. It's, um, there's, I'm, I'm very involved in the pickleball world, but you can reach out. Pickleball has very targeted places right now because it's in growth phase. So you reach out on all their, actually Facebook marketing is fabulous for this category. And um, we reach out to the buy ads on the United States Pickleball Association website. Wow. And I also have a program where I give ambassadors and enthusiasts money to buy their T-shirt. And as long as they'll wear it and take a picture. Oh, that's cool. So how much money do you give? I actually pay probably about $20 per T-shirt we take off. Your first order's on us. Go choose what you like and we'll, we'll get it after you. We just want a picture of you wearing it. Wow, I love that. That sounds like something that that I would dream up. I love to try to come up with offers that are just so ridiculously good that people can almost not say no. That sounds to me like one of those. It must work really well for you because I'm sure magicians reach out to other magicians and they're going to ask where you got that if it's compelling. So you're really paying for a salesperson on commission in that model. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. We used to give uh, everyone that ordered over $100, we used to throw in a, a free t-shirt that said born to perform on it, which is our slogan. So we, we had That's cool. thousands and thousands of magicians wearing our born to perform t-shirts. That was good because it didn't have our brand name on it, but everybody knew it was connected to us. So you know they could go out and, and wear it. 
it, it was also good because when people saw someone with a shirt on that says born to perform across the front, they'd, they'd ask them about it. And that was a good trigger for our customer to do a magic trick for them. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. So what is it right now? What's, what's your mix? Is keepdoggysafe.com still the biggest or is it kind of an even split between the three sites? Where is most of the revenue coming from now? Well, Pickleball Paradise is a work in progress. We're just trying to get everything in place for the holiday season. And then Mexican train spikes in the holiday season. And Keep Doggy Safe is pretty steady all along. There is a spike in the holiday, but still most of the sales are coming from Keep Doggy Safe because it's the site that has been out the longest and has the biggest email list. I see. How big is email marketing for you and for your sites? It's very big. As you said, it has the lowest cost and the highest return. And we really have been trying this year more than any year to make sure that we have some interesting content and not just selling products. So we're, we're trying to, to write more, um, more blogs that match what our customers are buying and doing more targeted. Great. You mentioned content. And I saw on your site on Keep Doggy Safe, I saw a, a demo video for one of the lighted collars that I think I, I recognize your voice in it. Can you tell me a little bit about the content that you produce? You know, we probably should do much better higher-end professional content, but we started with our dog Wrigley trying everything on as demo dog. So people normally ask to see, have Wrigley try on something for them. So we ended up building videos of Wrigley trying on the clothes for people. So we sort of have a homey thing, but we also are just doing, we should be doing it more professional, as everyone will say. We sort of kept this touch to the marketplace. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people have too high a standard and then it means that they don't actually produce the content. So I I love it that you kind of did it in a way where you did what you could do and it's charming to the, you know, it's charming and it's authentic for the visitors. Sometimes people get so wrapped up in pretending that they're a huge giant corporation that they end up not producing content that would really add value and help a customer decide to buy the product. Yes, that's totally right. In fact, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, um, a customer will ask questions and we'll say, do you have FaceTime? And then we'll, we'll go and tr- put the dog collars and leashes on our dogs to show them how it would work. Wow. I, I love that. And that, that really works. So during the day, you'll do FaceTime video chat with customers. Well, it's, it's yes, we will. Because it, it's too hard. I mean, selling on the internet, something that's going to work for your dog is a tough battle. So the more we can make it visual the better the story's going to be. Yeah. Wow. I, I just love that. That's the first I've heard of anybody doing that. It's it's great advice. I mean, I think that that's really the direction that we have to move and kind of get out, get out from behind the website and still have personal connections with people. Because as you've illustrated and explained, it's such a competitive marketplace. But if you're willing to do something like get on FaceTime and show the customer the product, talk to them about sizing and their specific needs, that's that's just beautiful. I mean, that's that's where you're going to earn a customer and a, and a fan. Right, because who's doing that? Is Amazon ever going to do that? But, you know, it's very easy for us. Nobody in our team considers it selling. We're talking to someone about their dog. A lot of time their dog's going in for surgery or they're calm because their dog's hurt and they need to see how the product would fit them. The dog's coming out of surgery and it's got to be right. So it really never feels like you're selling, you're actually problem solving with the customer. One thing about your business that we've touched on a little bit, but I don't think we've touched on it enough, is you're, you're on a mission to keep dogs safe. Like this is more than just a, a clever marketing idea. You, you really care about helping people to keep their pets alive. How has that impacted your marketing? How, how has it changed the dynamic to kind of be on this crusade, if you will? 
Well, it's, it's, it actually, it, we, I've never really thought about it. It's just very easy for us to always stay on that brand promise because we all care about dogs. So one thing that I did do is because we're all such softies for dogs and helping them that we, if someone sends us a note about a donation, we'll say, we'd be happy to give you a donation as long as you don't tell us another sad dog story. Uh-huh. So we have had to sort of cushion ourselves from all the horrible stories and oh, say, yeah. what can we do to help you? And if there's ever a disaster, because we have dog safety lights, we immediately pop up a sale to our customer base, say, buy one, we'll give one. And that tends to work the, the most. And then we show the picture of us shipping it out to the disaster relief programs. Wow. Now, does having this great story, has it helped you on the PR side at all? You know, we haven't le- leveraged that at all. We're um, going to do that more on WAG safely because I really want to try to educate people about saving money on a dog leash isn't the brightest idea because you're going for a dollar more, you're going to get a class that doesn't break when your dog lunges after the squirrel and really stop and think about, you know, what are you really saving when you don't ask the right questions about the product? So that we're going to, that's, that combines all of our experience more into why this product is safe. And that's based on our experience. There's one thing that, that I kind of teased in the, in the introduction but I've been looking forward to asking this question all week. Over the years, you've had e-commerce stores on Magento, Yahoo stores, Big Commerce, and Shopify. If you're putting up a new site, and I know you have with Pickleball Paradise and, and Mexican Train Fun, if you're putting up a new site today, which platform would you put it on? Shopify. We just moved Pickleball Paradise from Big Commerce to Shopify. I just can't say enough. It was like entering a new world, going into Shopify. That all the the way that everything is designed with the same interface and all the apps that they have, which we were scared to go into an app universe because we didn't want all the monthly fees, we find it just fantastic. Like that, the, the program I showed talked to you about, about being able to instantly put up the t-shirts and all that, that's yep. an app that you click on it, choose a product, and it loads the listings for you. I mean, that's I, I have used Shopify and I also am a big fan, but I haven't used Big Commerce. And a lot of the folks that I've interviewed are users of Big Commerce. Can you talk to me a little bit about the differences? What, what are the limitations on Big Commerce that you experienced? The limitation is there weren't as many apps when we started. And it's things that are kind of really tough on us is that Google Shopping and Bing Shopping doesn't automatically resend the feeds. So it's a manual task for us and it's rather technical to have somebody send the feeds in and it's things are just a little bit more difficult. I mean, as you ha- have a Shopify store on your iPhone and your Shopify app, you can quickly see which variants are out of stock and make changes. Big commerce doesn't have a useful iPhone app. And there's just one, one thing things where we were paying a lot of money for and always need custom development on our Yahoo or our big commerce platform we could get done in a day on Shopify. Yeah, I've had that same experience. Yeah, and the customer service team is so great on Shopify. And they will help you. And the other ones, when you call up and you have something that roams on a technical problem, because let's face it, we're all much more experienced. If we're calling customer service, we don't want to call customer service. So it's a more advanced need that classically is just a touch of coding. They normally don't ever want to help you with that on, on big commerce or definitely not on Yahoo. Asked you always sent you to a developer and in big commerce, getting a developer was very hard and it could take three weeks to get any solutions. Shopify can help you on a customer service call or you could get help within a one week there from one of their developers. Is there anything that you don't like about Shopify? The big sticking point that I've had, and it hasn't been an issue for me, but 
for friends of mine that I've been trying to convince to switch over to Shopify, the big sticking point is that the URL changes during checkout. The customers basically redirect it to a URL that Shopify controls. Was that a sticking point for you? Have you had any problems with it? You know, that's funny you said that because uh, we have a killer developer that we met through Shopify that we asked if we could change it. And there's no way to change that because then you could trick it in our other two programs. I've never had a customer ask us, but our technology people that work with us think it's a problem. Have you had a customer tell you that they didn't feel comfortable and was this a safe checkout? Never. You, have you had customers say that? No, I, I've never. I, I haven't mean, either. We don't use it for Penguin Magic. Penguin Magic, that's that's the big site where we do a lot of orders. And that's where I'm sure I would have heard about it. The, the sites that I've used Shopify for are smaller sites, but I've never had a customer. And that's the thing. Customers tend to tell you if they're displeased about something, you know, like they don't keep oh, Particularly <laughs> on shopping cart safety, such a sticking point. Yeah, they, they would tell you, they'd call that number on your phone and say, hey, I don't feel comfortable ordering because I got redirected. I don't think it's a big issue. Shopify has hinted that they may make it available. You know, it's, a, it, it's available now. You just have to have to use their, I forget what the, the service is called, but they have a higher level of service that's, I think, minimum of $1,000 a month currently. I, maybe it's enterprise. I think they might call it Shopify enterprise. But if you use their service, that's about $1,000 a month. You can have it, you know, you can have your own security certificate and they won't redirect to that URL. The reason they do it is because that way they're redirecting to a secure page that has their own secure certificate so that all of their customers don't need to have their own security certificate and maintain that. So it makes it a lot easier for people to just get started and get a store up and running right away. And that's been revolutionary how much easier Shopify has made it to get up and running. You don't need a merchant account. They give you that. You don't need a security certificate. They give you that. And you could literally put up a site in 15 minutes. So... Once again, that might be great, but it, that's another factor you have to decide when you have a store, when the barriers of entry come up to how many people can build their own site. That And it looks doggone great on Shopify. Um, that's another thing that, that threatens people who have been in the market for years. Yeah, it is. It is getting increasingly competitive, but it's amazing. I mean, you've had a lot of good ideas and, and it's really inspiring to hear how you've managed to navigate and figured out ways to connect with customers and add value. It's it's really exciting. And, and to do it across three different product categories is really awesome. Well, thank you. I wouldn't say it's easy, but talking to people like you and bouncing ideas off and going on the e-commerce pages has really helped. Are there some other resources that you that you recommend for people as far as e-commerce? You mentioned Entrepreneur Magazine, which I think is a, is great advice. Are there other places that, that you've learned a lot? Yeah. Um, you know, we had a great group in Yahoo. It was a closed Facebook page way ahead of its time that everyone helped everyone all day long on issues. And Shopify has, I haven't really gotten involved in their Facebook page, but I'm sure that's a great asset. And um, just on LinkedIn, people that I that are in the industry, I follow their posts. Just kind of, you know, without anyone really being aware, we're constantly going to school every day when you're reading everything about your business. So it's really kind of a gift how much social media has helped us. Now, one thing I forgot to ask about, I believe you also had a store on Magento. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Uh, so um, when we did so well marketing other people's products, a lot of people have hired us to help them with their websites and help them market. And the Magento store is great if you've got a technical person or a developer on staff. If you don't, you definitely can't um, make a lot of changes. 
So if you're a big company and you have so many products and you need to have a wholesale site and do all this high-end stuff, then Magento is a great platform. It's not a, it's a very difficult technical platform for people who don't have technical experience. You're constantly having to have a developer help you on issues. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys were probably using Magento's community edition, yeah. the free open source, but then you're hosting it on your own servers. Because right. they also did the yeah. Magento Go for a while, which was their hosted version, which was quite a bit easier uh, f- for users. But they, they shut that down, I believe, a little over a year ago. Yeah, I've had the same experience with with Magento. It's it, it just gets really expensive. If you compare the difference between Magento and Shopify, with Magento, oh you've got so much risk because at any moment, that site could slow down. I, there was a company I was consulting for running on Magento. All of a sudden, for no for no reason, their site, I mean, we, we didn't know what the reason was, but the site just really slowed down. It was taking 15 or 20 seconds to load a page. And you know, we dug into it and got a hold of a lot of Magento experts, talked to Magento and you know the experts that they recommended. They wanted around $20,000 to go in and just to look at the code and do, do a code review and figure out where the problem might be. It was twenty thousand dollars just to just to start that conversation, and then it was you know significant. I, I forget what they billed that hourly, but it was you know at least a couple hundred dollars an hour if they were actually going to go and fix anything after after the code review. So I think that when you compare that world where you're running your own servers and it's your problem if the site goes down or it's your problem if the site slows down, compared to Shopify, it just feels like such a breath of fresh air. You can just relax, oh. and it's someone else's problem if it's if it's down. Right. It's it's amazing. Well, do you have any other advice for, for e-commerce entrepreneurs that I may have missed? You're such a wealth of knowledge and you've got such great experiences. I feel like I, I probably have, have missed some, some questions that I should have asked you. No, I think you did a, a great job. And um, who knows, in another month, there's going to be a whole new Google will change an algorithm. The SEO things that you tried so hard to do all for the last year will change underneath you and there'll be a new hurdle that you have to figure out. So I I think you asked all the right questions. Um, You know, my knowledge I got from asking people all how the last time I went to the dog show, I went up and interviewed every vendor and said, tell me how you're dealing with Amazon today. Is it profitable? And they all came up with it. Well, I shouldn't say this on. I won't say this. (laughs) (laughs) But they all had different solutions and had a new acronym for Amazon. Wow. But um, everyone was challenged as a vendor. Um, dealing with Amazon, because what happens is when you really determine what the cost is to sell on Amazon, and a lot of them had to have a dedicated person who just trued up all the invoices and made sure the inventory was received and managed the FBA storage fees, all that stuff. It's a very expensive platform to sell your product on. And then you always have to fight to try to battle to keep your MSRP up. Yeah. On episode five of, of this show, Patrick Sullivan from Jigsaw Health was on the show, and he blew my mind with, a, with an Amazon strategy that they're using. So try to make a long story short, but as a manufacturer, they're able to thrive now with Amazon being a really important channel for them. If someone goes lower on Amazon, they'll just go a few cents lower. Well, but it could be a race to the bottom, and that's what you have to worry about on Amazon. Yeah, that's true. But I guess I guess uh, you know, these folks, since since they're not dealing with counterfeiting, Eventually, the retailers right. that they sell to say, "Look, we, we we can't obviously we can't beat the manufacturer on price, so we're just not going to compete." And then their prices have bounced back up to where they want them. But anyway, I just thought that was a really interesting way. That's very yeah. There's great strategies that that's what everyone has to keep inventing. Actually, I had heard that if you, it's very hard for you to control your price as a manufacturer on Amazon. And they, they 
some people have said, and I know two manufacturers who have done that, they built their own Amazon store on the Amazon platform and set the MSRP obscenely high. And that's the MSRP that Amazon will back them on. So that's one way they've controlled the price cutting was by building their own Amazon branded store. So I don't know if that's still in place, but that's what they had done. That's how they could, that's because Amazon is really tough on uh, dealing with and having, they have so many people begging them to help them control their MSRP. And it's an ongoing issue because every day the prices change with all the repricing tools. So the Amazon told them to build their own Amazon store and they will use that as the MSRP. Huh. Oh, very interesting. Well, Karen, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for taking the time. As I said, your experiences are, are just so valuable, and I really appreciate you getting on here and, and sharing them with us and telling us the story of KeepDoggySafe.com, MexicanTrainFund.com, and PickleballParadise.com. I recommend that everybody go check out those sites. You'll see great examples of what's working in e-commerce today. Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you very much. Tell anyone to send any comments. We're open to any suggestions. I will. Thanks, Karen. Karen Gold from KeepDoggySafe.com. Thanks again. Thank you. That's it for this episode of e-commerce today. Thanks to Karen for being an awesome guest. Thanks to our sponsors, Pip.Today and Hors And thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode. 